Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And if you're uh, using one of the Bibles that we have there in the back, um, first of all, if you have a Bible and need one, not only can you take that Bible and use it for the service, but take it home with you, our gift to you. And uh, we would love to do that. And um, that Bible, page 539. So Acts 15, which is page 539 in one of our church Bibles there. And ask that you turn there. I love what we uh, just sang. I think about that song a lot. And it's always convicting when we sing it. How often I've had to say those words. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. So often I can make things about myself and about my own wants and agendas and so on. And uh, keep returning to that place. It's all about Jesus. Life is all about Christ. Ministry. Church, Forest Hills, all about Christ, right? I am certain that that is one of the main takeaways from the book of Acts. Uh, We see that their commitment to the mission, their commitment to do hard, uh, their commitment to deal with conflict appropriately throughout the book of Acts, all comes down to a heart for Christ, love of the gospel, and a desire for Jesus' name to be made known. And if that is primary to us, generally speaking, doesn't mean we're not going to have any hiccups and things along the road, but everything else will fall into place if we mean what we just sang. It's all about you, Jesus. Hopefully that will surface today as we talk about Acts chapter 15, the end of the chapter here. So I want to read this passage. Conflict. Wow. Between two of the greatest church leaders who have ever lived, Paul and Barnabas. And I want us to look at this today and seek to learn from it and grow uh, ourselves. So Acts 15, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul is referring back to their first missionary journey that they had taken uh, months, if not a couple years before. So that's what he's talking about. Go back. That's who he's talking about, going back and visiting. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. God, pray this morning that you would take your word, use it, minister to our hearts whatever it is we stand in need of this morning. Whether that's a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of correction, and everything in between, God. We pray that you would do the work that needs to be done in our hearts. Not so that we can live here and make a name for ourselves or for this church, but so that we can go from here better equipped to serve Jesus Christ and make him known to the world. Pray for your spirit to work now. 
And as always, God, we pray this for the glory of Jesus, the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The early church, right? Everything was great. Yes. Idealistic time in the, in the, the church's history. Kind of like this, I read this little section here. It's a book called Stuff Christians Like. It's quite funny, actually. This guy has unique insight into church world. Um, here's a little section he has in his book. Wishing you had an easy job, like working at a church. <laughs> Don't you wish you could work at a church? That would be such a dream job. I've never been blessed that way, but my assumption is that other than Sunday, church job is kind of like having a really long quiet time. You probably get to read the Bible all day and take long breaks in your prayer closet and spend eight hours a day growing in your own spiritual life. I'm sure the phone rings sometimes, like when someone needs a casserole of hope during a difficult time, or a uh, youth group van breaks down. But for the most part, I imagine the average day is filled with a lot of me time. And God is your boss. How cool is that? There's no politics or infighting or gossip like at the average corporate job. It's just a collection of people, a family, really, living out the gifts of God that God has given them, loving on each other. Everyone is all on the same page, pouring out to each other the love that God is pouring into them. Don't you want to just hug this book right now, just thinking about all of that? I bet there's always an acoustic guitar being played somewhere in the office. <laughs> Should we even call where people work at a church an office? Let's call it a happy, holy spot instead. And when you go to make copies on the printer, you'll hear that acoustic guitar and probably join an impromptu sing-along right there in the mailroom and make up a song. Right? It happens, Rebecca, right? All the time. A... Is it really even a full-time job? Seriously, other than maybe a few hours on a Sunday morning, what else are you doing? Praying? Worshipping? Holding car washes to raise money for mission trips? I mean, what's that take? Like four hours tops? How do you spend the rest of the week? Being loved on, I bet. See, there it is again. It's the kind of thing that's constantly happening if you work at a church. But good luck trying to say that at a real job. If tomorrow in one of my meetings at work I said, I really need to love on these third quarter budget estimates... I would get immediately laughed on by my coworkers, but not if you work at a church. They support each other. Plus, they've got an entire congregation full of people that love them unconditionally. Imagine having hundreds of people that are fans of what you do and how you do it. People that are going to wholeheartedly accept what you do and never write mean emails, no matter if they disagree with your decisions. Me? I read negative opinions from our customers all the time. People that work at churches... No, they're opening thank you notes and sunshine emails and gift baskets with delicious cheeses and spiced meats all day long. (laughs) Someday, if they ever sunset my job, a fun-sounding euphemism we're actually using now to replace the word eliminate, maybe I'll get a church job and get to live the sweet life. This is the early church, right? This is our perspective, Great, you had Paul and Barnabas. Peter occasionally shows up. Signs and wonders. Like it couldn't get any better than that. The perfect church. Acoustic guitars, rainbows and unicorns all day long. Man, I wish we lived in the early church. Guess what? Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas. 
conflict. Not all rainbows and unicorns. I'm not sure they had acoustic guitars. Taylor was probably around then, but harps, maybe, whatever they had. No, they stopped playing. In Acts 15, the, the record scratch. Everything stops. Conflict. Disputes. Between two of the best that have ever been in the church's history. I want to open up uh, some details and thoughts from this conflict and see what we can learn from Paul and Barnabas and how they handled it. The whole thing starts off innocently enough, right? Paul and Barnabas desire to, to check in on the churches from their first missionary journey, right? Already alluded to this. I think right from the get-go here, there is something to take from this suggestion that Paul had toward, to Barnabas and their desire to do this. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the conflict, this started really great. Let's return and visit the churches we've previously been to. It, it speaks to the ongoing nature of discipleship and ministry. Evangelism, discipleship, generally is not a one-and-done type of thing. It requires intentionality, it requires ongoing relationships, it requires investment. I like that. Paul and Barnabas, this is a challenge to us. They weren't going to let these new believers, these young churches, just fend for themselves. They had genuine care. So right away, I think there is something here to apply from this sentiment from Paul, that we need to care about people at that level. Jesus said, make disciples. That includes more than just showing up once a week and worshiping in a room together. Right? Long-term commitment. That's why at our base camp meetings in the summer, before we launch into base camp, we tell the, the staff and the counselors, we tell them, listen, this isn't just about this week. It's much more than that. This week is about them hearing truth, and it's about uh, having fun together and building a relationship. But the desire is that that kid now has another connection with adult in the church that will have long-term benefits and bear fruit in the years to come. Relationships, ongoing investments to keep caring about each other, to pour into one another. Jesus said, make disciples. One of the clearest commands he gave. Who are you discipling? Who are you building into long term. That's why we're asking for people to work in children's ministry, to love on these kids, build into them long term. We can take that away uh, from the opening salvo here in, in this passage. Paul cares deeply about maintaining relationship and discipling. Look at some of the passages later on that Paul wrote. This is from First Thessalonians. Um, Paul is writing, the, the context of this is after they had been, uh, Paul and, and, and Silas had to flee Thessalonica because of the persecution there. And they were scared. They were worried about this group of young believers in the church. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Later on, a couple verses later, for now we live. This is after Paul got the report back from Timothy. He said, we got the report back from Timothy that you were still strong in your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the word. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Do you see Paul's heart there for relationship and discipleship? 
He's concerned for you. And when he hears back that they are still growing in their faith, he says, now I really live. My greatest joy in life is knowing that the people I've poured my life into are going on and living for God. That's the heart of discipleship. That's the heart that Paul and Barnabas exhibit here when they say, let's go back. Yes, it's going to cost money. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's a long and arduous journey. But let's go back and continue to build into the lives of these people. That's the heart of discipleship. So there's a good challenge here at the beginning, right? I'm so thankful for people that, in my own life, who've long-term, made long-term investment in me. Every time I go back to Cedarville, we try to see Jim Cato, the music team director there. Um, and, uh, and, and we will have some, some, some you know, small talk a little bit, but Jim always eventually looks you in the eye and starts asking hard questions. This is after years and years and years. Love that. Jeff was that to me. Over the period of years, Built in, long-term relationships, long-term friendships. We still call each other. I still call him. He calls me. To have that long-term, love that. We need to be that to one another, building into one another. So, so far, rainbows, unicorns, everything's great. This is good, right? But then Barnabas has an idea, right? Let's take John Mark. Everything stops. A little bit of context. Before we get into this, for those who maybe haven't been here or you're visiting with us, there's some things that would be helpful to know to understand why this con- conflict was so significant uh, between these two men. First of all, Paul and Barnabas have been tight. I don't know if that's a good word to use or not, but these guys, these, these guys were, they were tight. A strong brotherhood, a strong relationship. If you remember way back in Acts chapter 9, after Paul came to Christ, Paul, who had been Saul who hated the church, persecuted believers, right? This was Saul. He was present, approving of the first martyr, Stephen, of his death, because he hated Christianity. And God miraculously saves Saul, and changes his name, and he becomes Paul. And, and when Paul starts coming back around Jerusalem, as you can uh, appreciate, the leaders of the Jerusalem church and others are going, don't bring that, no, 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 we know who that is. No, 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 no that's Saul, He kills us. He doesn't like us. And it was Barnabas. Barnabas was the guy who went to bat for Paul and said, no, no, no. No, I speak on his behalf. The brother, he's a brother now. He's different. He's changed, right? In Acts 11, after Barnabas goes to Antioch and the church there grows and Barnabas is like, oh man, I need some help. What does he do? He goes to Tarsus to look for for Paul to bring him back, to partner with him in ministry of his great respect and love for, for Paul, and they, they minister together in Antioch. These guys have a long history. I, I immediately thought, as I was reading about their relationship, I thought about Jeff and I, and just the long-term respect and relationship and friendship that we had. Jeff and I are not at the level ministry-wise of Paul and Barnabas. I'm not saying that, but, but the, that relationship and working together, and, 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 and you know, for that to be torn apart um, in conflict would be heart-wrenching. Right? So these guys shared that history. It was a significant parting. Right? I know NFL analogies don't hit everyone the same way, but at, you know, growing up as a quasi-New England Patriots fan, I mean, this was, this was the separation of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, right? like the greatest quarterback and one of the greatest coaches of all time. I remember that when they're like, Brady's leaving, and they're like, oh, no, they can't break up, you know? But they did. It was terrible. It's significant. It's, Paul and Barnes a lot more significant 
than Belichick and Brady, right? That's what you have there, though, a significant parting. John Mark. Paul refers to this here. John Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey. See that in Acts 13. We don't know why Mark left. Luke doesn't tell us. There's a lot of speculative reasons that commentators have have thought about over over the years. Too hard, maybe too hard emotionally, too hard uh, spiritually or physically. Remember, they're about to make a 100-mile trip there on that first missionary journey. Gained 3,600 feet of elevation as they journeyed. That is a long, arduous trip. And maybe John Mark was like, I ain't doing that. You know? It's like portaging on a wilderness trip. I'm not doing that trail, you know? Uh, maybe that was the problem. I don't know. Um, maybe he was pampered. Some suggest that John Mark may have been pampered in his upbringing. We know his mom hosted the church in Jerusalem. And to be able to host church, he probably had a fairly sizable house. And so maybe he, maybe he had a, a really great upbringing and, and had been pampered a little bit. Speculative. I don't know. Uh, some speculate that Paul was sick in Pamphylia. And one of the reasons why they left Pamphylia and went inland was because Paul was sick. Uh, and we say that based on Galatians 4. Paul says, you know that I first preached to you in Galatia out, out of poor health. And maybe that was overwhelming to John Mark. Like, not only is this hard and difficult, but I don't want to end up like, Paul, I'm out of here. I'm not getting sick. Some speculate that maybe he was upset about the role change between Barnabas and Paul. That Paul began being the one taking more of the lead. Uh, if that matters, we, we don't know. But what we do know is this, that whatever the reason was, we see here in this passage today that Paul viewed it in a negative way. Paul viewed it as a desertion, as um, an abandonment. That, that word in the ESV in verse 38, withdrawn from them, that word withdrawn is actually a, a, a bit mellow. The word is much stronger. If you have an NIV, uh, the word that comes across there is deserted. <clears throat> and that's a little, little bit closer to the truth. That word means to rebel, to revolt, to fall away. It's even used sometimes in the New Testament to convey the idea of apostatizing. Uh, John Mark didn't apostatize, but it's a strong word. Paul's like, no, he quit. He quit. He ain't coming with us. No way. No way. He viewed John Mark's leaving in in a negative way. The other thing you need to know, and maybe sheds light on this, is that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. These guys were family, blood relatives. We see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. So there's some things that give you a little insight into why this conflict was maybe uh, as intense as it was. Some background things going on here. So they disagree about the place of John Mark on this upcoming trip. Barnabas wants to take him. Paul flat out refuses. Verse 38, it says, Paul thought it best that John Mark not come with him. Seems to imply that Paul does not see John Mark as being dependable or capable of handling the rigorous trip and the ministry demands that lay before them. So there's this conflict. By the way, this is not the first time we've seen conflict in the book of Acts. Right? You go back to Acts chapter 6, there was the complaint over how the widows were being handled. Some conflict there. Acts 15, where we were the past couple weeks, the Jews and Gentiles, conflict there. So this is about the third significant conflict in the book of Acts. I point that out simply to say this. Each of these times, we see the church, the people, work things out in a God-honoring way that allows ministry to continue. I'm going to suggest to you we're going to see that again here uh, between Paul and Barnabas. Bach, Daryl Bach in his commentary calls this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas an embarrassing detail. It's not a pleasant part of the story. Again, the, the unicorns and rainbows and acoustic music in the back, that's gone. It's kind of ugly. And this disagreement seems to escalate 
quickly. This word, sharp disagreement, it's colorful language. It implies anger and frustration, irritation and exasperation. Things that we've never felt towards each other in this room. I know that, right? Um, But that's what it implies. Sharp difference of opinion, strong emotional involvements. Again, this is the first time Paul and Barnabas have disagreed. Read in Galatians 2. The whole conflict between Paul and Peter, Barnabas kind of was on the side of Peter in that. And Paul was calling out uh, Peter, but in calling out Peter, he was calling out the side that Barnabas had chosen as well. So this isn't the first time these guys have, have had disagreement. What this demonstrates to us, and what we need to understand, is that disagreement will happen. Disagreement is part of the deal when a bunch of sinners, like us, work together, worship together, minister together. If it can happen to the best of us, Paul and Barnabas, it certainly can happen here, and it does happen. It's part of the deal. I heard someone say one time, I don't want to be part of a church where there's disagreements. I'm like, well, let me know when you find that one. And when you do, don't go to it, right? Um, It's part of the deal. The issue isn't whether or not it's going to be disagreement. This is what we do with it when it happens. Right? Paul and Barnabas disagree sharply. G. Campbell Morgan in his uh, commentary on the book of Acts writes this, I am greatly comforted when I read of this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. If I had never read that, that Paul and Barnabas had a contention, I should have been afraid. R. Kent Hughes follows up that quote by saying this, Paul and Barnabas were men, not angels. People together in proximity, we're going to have disagreements. So the issue isn't whether or not there will be disagreements. It's what we do with them when they come. It's what we do with them when they come. So let's look at what Paul and Barnabas did. Paul and Barnabas decide to separate from each other and embark on two separate trips. All right, immediately our mind goes to this. Who was right? Who was right? Who won? Who is the winner here? Doesn't matter. In fact, there's no blame assigned, is there? Luke is not concerned with who is right or who won this argument. F.F. Bruce writes, it is idle for the reader to try to apportion blame. So again, Luke's not concerned with who's right or wrong. I wonder if maybe this is because Luke would rather have us focus on the outcome of this and how God worked through it. So what did they do? I'd suggest to you this, first and foremost, Paul and Barnabas, they compromise. They compromise. Think about how this plays out. Barnabas takes John Mark on a less strenuous trip back to his home island, Cyprus is where Barnabas was from, a place where John Mark had been before. Maybe this is so Barnabas can bring him along a little bit slower and a little bit easier. Paul takes Silas and goes on the more challenging, rugged, overland route. They sailed the first time. This time Paul goes north through Syria, through Damascus, and west over land. In fact, they go through a passage called the Cilician Gate, which enabled him to go through Tarsus on his way west. It seems to me that this speaks to a degree of intentionality and coordination between these two men. They split the trip up, and it seems to be intentional to me that 
Barnabas takes John Mark back to a place where he'd been before, I believe with the intent of bringing him along slowly and helping disciple him. And Paul takes the harder route. I think they did this intentionally. I think this was part of their plan, part of their compromise. Okay, we have this disagreement. You go this way. I will go that way. I want to suggest to you this, too, that they did this without bitterness or competition. Now, you're looking at it going, that's not here. It doesn't say without bitterness or competition. Where are you getting that from? I'd suggest to you, there's no grudge. We know that they didn't leave the Antioch church, that they didn't break fellowship with each other or the sending church. We see that in Acts chapter 18, another place. They continue to come back. Paul continues to come back to Antioch church as his base of operations to whom he was accountable. I also say this because of the words that we read later on in Paul's writings. Look at this. This is 2 Timothy 4.11. This is years later. Paul writes this. Luke alone is with me. This is during Paul's imprisonment. Get Mark. Even though he was the jerk who split us up way back years ago. No. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Doesn't sound like a guy who's bitter. Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom we have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark here is with Paul, seemingly ministering together. Philemon 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul in ministry with the guy who is at the root of this conflict. And regarding Barnabas, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. Again, years later. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? We see here Paul working with John Mark, and we see here that Paul has continued respect for Barnabas. So I would suggest to you that had there been bitterness or a spirit of competition between these men, we don't read any of this. I think we can also go ahead and draw from places like Philippians, where Paul writes, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. Do nothing from empty, you know, vain conceits, selfishness. I think the man who wrote that had lived this out in his life. This is where things differ from our disagreements and conflicts many times. Right? We want to win. Prove the other person was wrong. I believe that Paul and Barnabas let it go and went on in ministry. Now, often when we have disagreements, we'll let it simmer. We often will hang on to some sense of competition or desire to be proven right. right let's be honest. I mean, if I was Paul, there would be a small part of me that hopes that Mark deserts Barnabas again. Just so, see, I told you so. I guarantee you that was not Paul's mindset. When we take wrong approaches to conflict, it grows in our hearts like a cancer. It poisons us. It causes other things to become big deals until everything blows up. It's like shaking up a two-liter bottle of soda and throwing it in the air and letting it come down and blast. That's, and it build up, build up. This passage is not prescriptive 
for what we should do as an automatic response when we disagree. Do not read this passage and go, oh, I had a disagreement with Jake. I'm walking away from him. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. I don't like him anymore. That's what we do. That's not what's going on here. And I think if you read that into this passage, you ignore everything that was written beyond this about the relationship and ongoing work that these men did together. And you read something into here that's not here. The overwhelming force of the New Testament, the one another's, tell us otherwise, to bear with one another. Again, even all Paul's own writings. Right? I believe that these men dealt with this conflict in a godly, Christ-honoring way that allowed gospel ministry to go on powerfully. The testimony, the record, bears that out. A couple quotes here. This is uh, John Stott. He writes, This conflict, this example of God's providence, may not be used as an excuse for Christian quarreling. Ajit Fernando writes, God is bigger than our problems, and he wills for his children to live in unity. Thus, we can hope for a resolution whenever there is a problem. That we may be unable to resolve it is because of stubbornness, error, or ignorance the part of one or both sides of the conflict. Paul and Barnabas ultimately make the decision to go different directions for this next trip. This next trip. So this conflict demonstrates that sometimes we disagree on how something should be done, so we should be able to work through that and go work maybe in different areas, but still have a spirit of unity and peace that permeates our disagreement. Paul and Barnabas worked out a solution that advanced the gospel, They continue to have a longer relationship beyond the disagreement here. Their relationship, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, does not end in Acts 15 with bitterness and disagreement. If this disagreement had been characterized by the things that often characterize our disagreements today, then the end of the story may well have been written differently. Paul and Barnabas stop talking. They compete. It maybe causes a rift in the Antioch church. John Mark doesn't go on to write a gospel and doesn't contribute to Paul's mission and ministry later on. Let me give you a personal example of this that I think illustrates it really well. You've heard me talk about uh, my childhood church, church I grew up in, how close uh, we were in that church and what it meant to me. And, um, and as you know, when I, when I got in, going into ninth grade, my family left that church. The way that unfolded, though, was this way. There was some disagreement between my dad and some of the other people who were helping lead that youth ministry there. And the decision that was made was not to leave that church. The decision that was made is that my dad would step down from leading the youth ministry and would step into another area of ministry and we'd continue to stay there and minister together. I think had it ended there, that's this. It's Paul and Barnabas. That's not what happened. Decision had been made, but then the pastor shows up and I remember it so clearly because I was eavesdropping out my window listening to the conversation between my dad and the pastor on the front porch. And uh, something was said, and there was a response, and there was an elevated response, and an elevated, and it continued to increase, 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 and finally blow up to the point where the way that conversation ended is we will not be coming back to this church or set foot in there ever again. That is where it went differently. How Paul and Barnabas handled it here. You see the difference? The one way would have been the God-honoring way to do it. But in the heat of the moment, when emotions were running high and things started to be said, and there was no attempt after the fact to come back by either side to resolve the situation. And there was pain that resulted from that. And there was harm to the ministry 
And there was harm to my family and our ability to minister because I think some of the bitterness that was there. And it took a long time to heal from that. This is the difference. Paul and Barnabas did not allow this to create long-term issues and bitterness and conflict and problems between them. And they certainly didn't allow it to hinder, hinder gospel ministry. That's the way we ought to handle these things. I think that's how they handle it here. So some thoughts and applications. This is encouraging. First of all, like we said, Paul and Barnabas were human. And they had a conflict. Ultimately, we see that this dispute does not hinder God from working and accomplishing his purposes. Part of that is, I think, that they handled it the right way. But the other part of that is, is that God is greater than us, and he's able to use us in spite of ourselves sometimes. Right? God does this. Genesis 50. We introduced that way back. The words of Joseph in Genesis 50, right? Um, what you intended for evil, God, God intended for good. God's able to take messes and bring things out of it for his glory. Romans 8.37. You've heard me say this before. Paul writes, we are more than conquerors. What does that even mean? I can't, how can I more than conquer you? I beat you, I beat you. What do I more than con- I, I think part of what is implied in that verse is to be more than a conqueror means that God is able to take Satan's attempts to kill and destroy and to steal and take them and turn them around and use them to hit Satan over the head with. I think that's what it means to be more than a conqueror. And I, I think we say Satan, Satan desires to, to destroy here, he, to bring disunity, and God is able to take this and turn it around and use it to accomplish his purposes. I, I ran into a guy a couple months ago, parking lot at Forest Hills Foods, and a uh, family that had left our church a while back. We run into each other, and I, I, I love this brother. And, I, and uh, such a humble, and we had a wonderful conversation. And, and he, you know what he said to me? He said, I've got to say something to you. He goes, it was a sin for us to do what we did, and it was sinful the way we did it. I'm like... The humility there. And, and I said, hey, you know what? We didn't handle everything well either. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said in spite of that, he said, I'm so thankful that God is able to write a better story when we mess things up. And God has done that. I mean, God can do this. We see that here. I'm so thankful that God's kingdom and God's work isn't dependent on these jars of clay. This place would have crashed and burned a long, long time ago <laughs> if that was how this works, right? So God can work. How does he work here? Well, if you think about it, now, instead of Paul and Barnabas, now we have two dynamic ministry teams going out and spreading the gospel, right? Barnabas, John Mark, Paul and Silas. Here's the other thing. The addition of Silas, I believe, is significant, strategic, Silas was a well-respected and gifted teacher from Jerusalem. We know that he had just been part of delivering the message, the letter from the Jerusalem council to Antioch. We also know from the letter, if you go back and look at the letter in verse uh, 23, that this letter wasn't intended just for Antioch. It was intended to go beyond Antioch to Syria and Cilicia, places that Paul was going to go on this next missionary journey, places where he would confront this thought that, 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 Christian, that people had to be circumcised, you know, this, this Jewish thought. Who better to accompany Paul in the face of that opposition than Silas from Jerusalem who had carried the letter? See, God can work in spite of our brokenness. Silas was a Roman citizen. 
It's allowed them, him and Paul to claim certain privileges that they traveled. We see in verse 32 of 15 that he was a prophet. We also see that Mark is in fact slowly brought along by Barnabas and Mark goes on and ultimately becomes a force for the cause of Christ. So we're encouraged by that, that God can still work in spite of our conflicts and in spite of the the bumps in the road. There's also lessons to be learned from the three men, the three primary men in this this, um, narrative, Paul, Barnabas, and John, John and Mark. From Paul, we see the guy who pushes ahead, right? The type A personality. Paul understood what was at stake. He had no time for someone who isn't dependable. He needed a dependable, committed, mature co-worker to be with him. Paul probably argued from the perspective of the requirements for this missional work. We see in Paul here, sometimes hard decisions have to be made. We have to take into account the nature of the mission. Sentimentality cannot derail gospel mission. We see Paul here determines a focus. He was the driver, right? We need it. That's admirable in Paul. Paul was right in that. And Barnabas we learn as well, right? Barnabas was the patient encourager. His name, chapter 4, verse 36, meant son of encouragement. We already talked about how he advocated for Paul, how he was sent to Antioch in chapter 11. He was patient. He was a teacher. Barnabas probably argued for more of the pastoral perspective. Hey, let's give John Mark a second chance. We can learn from that too, can we not? Sometimes we write people off after they've made a mistake, after they haven't handled a situation well, we're done with them. We don't give people learn room to learn and grow. I tell you what, Jeff and I wouldn't have been here as long as we had been here if this church hadn't been patient with us and given us space to learn and grow as young 21, 23-year-old guys just start out in ministry. We need to learn that from John Mark, to not just write people off. Well, they did this this one time. I don't think they can minister anymore. I can't. Really? Barnabas would have a word for you. Look at people with eyes of hope as Barnabas did. Barnabas saw potential. And then minister that hope and encouragement to people who may not make the cut in our fast-paced, rank-everything world. Grace enables people to start again, even people who have messed up like John Mark did. Adam Clark was a great Irish theologian in the 1800s. He wrote an eight-volume commentary on the Bible. Charles Spurgeon called him the prince of commentators. Pretty high praise coming from a man like Charles Spurgeon. The story is told of Adam Clark's uh, growing up years. And one time a distinguished visitor came to his school. And Adam Clark's teacher singled him out, pointed at him and said, that is the stupidest boy in the school. Before he left, this visitor came up to Adam Clark and said, never mind that, my boy. You may be a great scholar someday. Don't be discouraged, but try hard and keep on trying. He did. And Charles Spurgeon goes, one of the greatest commentators who've ever lived. Obviously, whatever Barnabas does with John Mark leads Mark to be profitable later on. Some investments just take longer to bloom. The validity of Barnabas' confidence is shown later on in Paul's words about Mark. And lastly, in regard to John Mark, be willing to grow. Be willing to grow from your experiences. In 1 Peter 5.13, the way Peter writes things, it seems like Mark became a close co-worker of Peter's in Jerusalem. 
Early church history indicates that Mark's gospel was actually Peter's account of Christ's life, that they worked that closely together. Mark was the one who penned the gospel as Peter related the accounts of Jesus to him. John Mark did not let his failure define or defeat him. Zach's a baseball coach. He's had a couple times now. Um, a really encouraging guy. And, and um, you know, it's a tendency. Guys would make a mistake. Zach would make a bad pitch, give up a hit, or a kid would make an error, right? And their tendency is to kind of pout. And his coach would always say to him, listen, don't trip over what's behind you. Don't trip over what's behind you. I'm not going to take you out if you make a mistake. But I tell you what, if you make a mistake and then sit there and pout and groan and throw your glove, I'm taking you out. Learn from your mistake and keep going. John Mark does this. One can pick up after failure and press on. Some ministry may require a Paul attitude and some ministry may require a Barnabas attitude. Some marks are more ready and therefore can be thrust into certain roles. Some marks need a different route and a different speed of training. Both are okay and neither are more important. As we disciple, we need to work at discerning and give accordingly. Right? Any good coach knows this. You learn your players and you teach accordingly and you put them in positions to succeed. We need both Paul and Barnabas figures. And lastly, we turn disagreement into opportunities for growth learning, and productive ministry. Understand this, that disagreements, disagreements can end in profitable and amicable outcomes. We just must be sure that we handle conflict in such a way as to not burn bridges, especially in the heat of a conflict. So don't make public statements that blow people up. Don't automatically quit, leave, or write people off Refrain from that caustic, reactionary email laced with emotion, and for crying out loud, set your social media down and back away slowly. Right? Work towards resolution. This passage gives us hope that resolution can be reached amongst mature Christ followers. Get other wise, less than emotionally people vested and and involved. That's the story of Forest Hills Baptist Church, by the way. When this church was at the heart of its conflict 25, 30 years ago, wise people leading the church at the time asked area pastors, hey, tell us what's wrong. Tell us what we need to do so we can fix this. You are sitting here today because they were willing to do that and have people speak truth into their lives and take conflict and turn it into something positive. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up and lead us in one last song. The guy... um, Kathy dated before she married me. I'm going to talk about this. His name was Aaron. Aaron Armour. Kathy and him broke up our senior year at Cedarville. Kathy and I started dating. After Kathy and I started dating, I think after we were engaged, guess what? I was a groomsman at Aaron Armour's wedding with Kathy there in attendance with me. You know why that happened? Because Aaron... First of all, in the course of the relationship, honored and respected the girl he was dating in such a way that didn't make that weird. But secondly, conducted themselves, and he conducted himself in that breakup in such a way that allowed for there to be a really good, strong friendship and ongoing relationship after the fact. They wrote a really cool story by the way they handled that conflict. Let's do the same when we have disagreement and conflict that we handle in such a way that we can continue 
to walk the halls of this place, be on each other's side as cheerleaders and co-ministers of the gospel together, making Jesus the main thing because we've learned how to handle conflict the way Paul and Barnabas did here in Acts 15.